So as the front of the bulletin will indicate this past Sunday, in those churches that follow the liturgical year, celebrated the reign of Christ. And so we're celebrating it today. It's a strange day, isn't it? The service goes all right because we read the song, or we sing together the song of Zechariah. And then we do Colossians with the great hymn of praise. We're beginning to have that hope and anticipation that Jesus is Lord over all. And then we come to this reading from Luke. The cross. How does that fit in? The Evangelical Lutheran Church of Sweden used to refer to this Sunday as the Sunday of doom. The day of final judgment. The king crucified God's judgment on us all. Whatever our denominational background, and we represent very many different denominations at Wycliffe, the reign of Christ, or Christ the King, presents us, and particularly those who lead in the church or those who hope to lead in the church, it presents us with many questions. Not the least of which is how to help people live in the tension of the Christian life. How to hear this hope for a new creation in the face of human evil and suffering in the midst of a world with so much confusion, so much hurt, so much despair. Not to mention our own struggles and failings. How do we preach hope that is more than just a few theological words in the midst of the confusion of people's lives? Well, one of the places we can always start is with C.S. Lewis, because he's always helpful. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis tells the story of Jadis, the white witch who has control over the world of Narnia. Aslan, who is the Messiah figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, comes into the world to confront evil, to confront Jadis. And in the pivot point of the first book, or the book, sorry, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which isn't actually the first book, Jadis binds Aslan to sacrifice him in the place of Edmund, who is the betrayer. Now the scene is set on this ancient stone table, a big slab of rock sitting on four small boulders. Around the edge of the table and on the table there is some ancient script that is written. And we aren't told exactly what is said there, but we are told that it is something about the laws, the ancient laws of Narnia, set in place by Aslan's father. So Lewis suggests to us that this is a sacred place and that it is connected to the deep magic of the earth. So Jadis has Aslan bound, put on the table, and then kills him. The next morning, the table is broken in half, and Aslan is gone, raised from the dead. Well, as is obvious to those who have read it, Lewis is weaving together different elements of the atonement theory, where the evil one is tricked, where a substitution is made, where a victory is won. Now, we might not be able to travel all the way with Lewis, particularly just after we've listened to a lecture on law and gospel, but his story does speak of a deeper magic. A deeper magic. 
the cosmic battle of good and evil that is played out on the cross. Now, none of the Gospels describe the crucifixion itself. The nails being hammered home. The post thudding into the ground. The excruciating pain. How do you describe the indescribable? Instead, what the Gospels do is they get you and I to look directly to the one on the cross. They say they crucified him. And as he dies, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is an extraordinary prayer. And all the more as Jesus prays this prayer in the face of unconcealed hostility. In our reading, we have, as it were, a triptych of scorn imaged for us. So on the left-hand panel, we see the soldiers mocking Jesus as they divide his clothing, offer sour wine, and say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In the center panel is the triple crucifixion, with a thief on one side deriding Jesus and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save us and us Save yourself and us too while you're at it. And then in the right-hand panel, we have the leaders of the people scoffing and saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah, the chosen one. To crucify a person isn't just to kill them. It is to mark them with a curse such that no one would want or could afford to associate with them, or to admit that they knew them. It is to try and erase any sign that they'd ever existed. They wanted to blot Jesus out of the book of life. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's no sign, is there, of repentance or remorse here? And yet Jesus intercedes with his Father to forgive them. Is Jesus saying that the people who put him to death didn't realize what they were doing? The soldiers, they were just following orders. Another day, another crucifixion. But they knew what they were doing, didn't they? The crowd gathered. Here in Luke's Gospel, they're pictured somewhat as shocked and traumatized by what's happening. In any case, they don't have too much say in the matter. What about Pilate? Well, Pilate was clearly caught. As a political leader, he did what political leaders around the world do. He made the best compromise possible. Pilate did not like what he was doing. At least the witness of the Gospels tell us that he didn't like it. But he knew what he was doing, didn't he? And the leaders of the people, they were doing their best to prevent an uprising that would only result in many people suffering and some, of course, getting killed. Well, that's pastoral leadership, isn't it? Trying to minimize suffering. The Jewish leaders have provided far too easy targets for the church. They are, or so we have often assumed, the perfect archetype of hypocritical 
and corrupt leadership, and perhaps some of them were. But to label them as such is not only misleading, it allows us to sit back pointing our fingers while we pat ourselves on the back. And we miss the fact that they are just like leaders in every age, skillful, thoughtful, wise. Like many church leaders doing their best to manage a difficult situation in the way that makes the most sense to them. They seem to act with confident assurance, as leaders often do, even when they have no idea what's really going on. The reading begins, as Landon read it to us, with the place called the skull. Luke doesn't call it Golgotha, but that's what it is in Aramaic, where they crucified him. So picture bleached bones scattered carelessly about from previous executions. In the Roman tradition, the bones would have been left there to be picked clean until there's nothing left but the bones, the place of the skull, indeed. But Ambrose and others have suggested that there is perhaps another reason for that name, the skull. They would have us understand that it is also marked as the burial place of Adam. In his poem, Hymn to God, My God, John Donne says, We think that paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. The one place. Like the stone table, there is deeper magic at work. Jesus, who had taken on the garment of Adam, now puts that off and reclothes humanity in life and incorruption. The new creation, new life, rising up right in the midst of the wreckage of the old. In this death, with all of its violence and ugliness, God is doing something new. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? When Jesus says they knew not what they are doing, he means that they don't perceive what God is doing. They have no idea that they are trying to blot out the author of the book of life, the one who holds each one of them gathered around them Gathered around him, he holds each one of them in his hand. In him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all these have been created by him and for him. And so no, they do not perceive that they are trying to stand in the way of God doing something new. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Again and again, as Luke continues in the book of Acts, it speaks of the ignorance of the religious leaders. 
wise in the ways of the world. They fail to realize that far from erasing Jesus from history, they are in fact witnesses as Jesus comes into his kingdom. There is a deeper magic at work. In the midst of all of this, there's one person who is given the gift of seeing the truth of Jesus, and he is the last person in this scenario we would expect to see Jesus clearly. And that is the thief on the other side. You see, Thomas and the other followers recognized Jesus in the resurrection. But the thief recognizes Jesus even as he hangs on the cross. He recognizes Jesus and his authority not in spite of the cross, but on the cross. The short passage from Luke consciously echoes Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 so that you and I might understand what is happening. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many, and yet he makes intercession for them. It is precisely in his suffering and death that we understand and come to know Jesus as the one who has fulfilled the purposes of God. He is the promised Messiah, the one who is Lord over all. So the tenor, the character, and the mark of Jesus' reign is displayed in his prayer as he dies on the cross. Father, forgive them. And the thief heard this prayer and believed. In what was surely the darkest place in his life, knowing that he was guilty, with no pretense that he could earn his way into the kingdom or that he had any hope of a future, about to be completely erased from the book of life, the thief responds to Jesus' prayer of forgiveness for us all. Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So the reign of Christ, Christ the King, holds up for you and I this paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. And it makes us sit there. And it makes us look at it. The King willingly crucified upon a cross. And so we sit before this horrible triptych of scorn, having heard Jesus' prayer so that we might begin to see, so that we might begin to perceive and then to live into this strange new kingdom. Jesus exhibits that to be the Messiah is to confront and to judge the world in all of its brokenness, to expose what we in our blindness and alienation from God do to one another and to our world over and over again. And Jesus shows us that he is not just the Lord of life. He is the Lord over suffering and death as well. Even in the midst of the deepest darkness of our lives, nothing can separate us from the love of God 
because He has gone there before us. He does not leave us in our suffering, but comes to us in the midst of the darkness and ugliness of this world to carry us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, our Lord and King, grant that the peoples of the earth, now divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his gentle and loving rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.